You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to Trek of M's local watering hole coming at you from only the finest Russian prison this evening and we're having a jailbreak which is fantastic and so exciting. I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing and if you don't get that joke, how do you not get that joke? We're talking about Ghost Protocol. <laughs> you should totally get that joke. So um, so excited that um, as she is with me almost every single week, Christy Morris is back. How's it going, Christy? It's awesome. And we are pulling a jailbreak. We're breaking out everybody. Yeah. We're bringing Bob That's Don. right. That's right. Because we've broken out John Champion too. Oh, man. It's so good to be back. Yes. Yes. It's a pleasure to be free. All right. Fantastic, man. We've got the team back together and uh, we are covering the last uh, Mission Impossible movie that we haven't covered here on the show. Um, So I'm excited to be able to talk about Ghost Protocol. I think, um, you know, we could say this is the movie that, you know, three was good, but, you know, didn't do as well at the box office. This is the one that seems to really put Mission Impossible on the box office map to where people get continued to get more and more excited about this so so excited to talk about it but before we get there christy we have a brand new review over in itunes which was we were so excited to get so very thankful for that um yeah thank you yeah and our reviewer and we're gonna we're gonna read and call out their name here um she uh we met on twitter rafella and um She said, found this podcast when I was looking for Star Wars book discussions, but found so much more to listen to here. Such great variety of subjects. And they gave us five stars, so we really appreciate that. It means so much to us to to hear what you think of the show and that you took time out of your day to write us a review over there on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It makes all the difference when people are looking for podcasts how many reviews you have. So the more we have... The better the reviews, the better we do. So if you haven't given us a star rating and review, if you like the show, please do go over there and give us a star rating and review. But wherever you get your podcast, so maybe you're not an Apple user, uh, that's fine. You can get your uh, Trek FM and the uh, 602 Club Fix anywhere podcasts can be caught by any podcatcher. So make sure you check that out. And we're on Twitter at Trek FM. Facebook at facebook.com slash trackfm. There's the listeners-only discussion group, the Babel Conference on Facebook. A couple ways to get there. One is on Facebook by typing Babel into the search field, or if you're on our website at trek.fm, hit discussion on any of the menu bars there on any of the show pages. You'll see a discussion button. Hit that. Uh, And then last but not least, you can send us emails. Um, Just go over to trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show choose the 602 club and then that'll come to christy and i and we'll be able to talk to you there so it's a new mission and a new director 
And so I wanted to ask you guys, because, you know, Brad Bird comes in to direct here. Um, Abrams is too busy at this point. And Brad Bird at this point is really mostly known for his animated features, uh, Iron Giant and then the Pixar movies that he had done. And of course, you know, he did The Incredibles. He did Ratatouille, very well received. Um, But his only live action before this film is Batteries Not Included. And so... I just wanted to kind of start here. What did you guys think about what he brought to the series? Well, I thought purely from the fact that he had done Incredibles as well, that the two kind of fit as if you've done one, then you can do the other because they're both in that spy genre. Um, so I, I feel like he did a really great job with the direction and that I expected him to. Um, and it, this was like my third rewatch of this movie because I think that it, it was just laid out in such a nice package and it's just really fun. I think it, you know, coming off the heels of MI3, it's a little more lighthearted, it feels like, than um, MI3 was with the villain and everything. So I, I really enjoyed the way that Brad directed this one and um, meant to mention to the writer, um, Josh Applebaum, he actually um, also worked on some episodes of Alias. So I feel like having Brad and Josh together made this a really good team. Yeah. um, You know, I was so lucky that I missed that week that uh, you guys talked about Mission Impossible 2. (laughs) <laughs> and um and, and i'm sure gotta keep rubbing it in john i know, you gotta keep know rubbing and, it in. And, and i'm sure that you talked about the oh the uh the the stylistic endeavors of director john woo on that mm-hmm. one and what's interesting to me is that each of the mission impossible films so far so you had brian de palma's mission impossible which in so many places we pointed out felt like a brian de palma film you could just tell like ah these are the places where he's flexing his uh, uh artistic creativity and his expertise um and then when we talked about, um, well, yeah, fortunately, I, I, I missed two. But then when we talked about three and we talked about J.J. Abrams and uh, how he's able to really nail these sort of uh, character intimacies that maybe we were missing before and really added a layer of uh, depth and, and seriousness to what was going on. And when we get to this one, Brad Bird, and I'm so glad, Chris, you mentioned uh, The Incredibles because, yeah, that's sort of the perfect entry point to come into something like this. That's a very stylized movie, partly because of the writing, partly because of the animation style that they chose, and partly because of the direction and and editing. And in this, I I feel like, you know, it's not Brad Bird flexing a whole lot of creative muscle. But he's getting everything right. Just everything feels right, like it belongs. And and the challenge with a movie like this, or like with a Bond movie, or any of the big spy genre movies, is you have to constantly strike this balance between, all right, are we enough in the real world that we understand sort of the political backgrounds and, uh, and that we feel a sense of danger when we should feel danger? Or are we in this sort of parallel universe <laughs> where, where everything is happening on sort of the surface level that we can't quite identify with, but it looks familiar enough to the world that we know? And 
so far between uh, three and four here, although they didn't give it four, they just called it Ghost Protocol. They've done a really nice job of that, uh, of giving us just enough character to feel connected to it. But then they'll sort of go off on a creative tangent that uh, that still puts the tongue firmly in cheek. It's funny. As you guys were talking, I was just kind of thinking about that idea of what Brad Bird brings and, you know, the idea of the Incredibles. And I think it finally just dawned on me that the thing that sets this movie apart from the others is the kind of... Um, cheekiness of it like mm -hmm. there's so many um and and part of that comes from i think this movie more than any other of the mission impossible movies has an overabundance of gadgetry like it is just chocked full of special gadgets that they use you know whether it's the gloves that he's using to climb the building or you know the metal suit with the robot that you know and the magnets and everything you know i mean um and there is a slight like you as you were talking about john the realism versus you know kind of this heightened sense and and i really feel like this is the one beyond two which is its own you know, it's in its own universe. <laughs> but I think really, too, is uh, this one uh, here, uh, Ghost Protocol is the one that feels the most cheeky. Like, and I don't, I, because I, I, I don't want to say campy because it's not campy. No, it's not cheesy. Um, at all. It, but but it, it, it just has a, a more heightened sense in some of the ways, like what you get in, in The Incredibles, where. There is some stuff that seems just above the over-the-topness that we've gotten before um, with, again, I feel like mainly in the gadgetry, which helps in a lot of the different um, massive set pieces that they have. So, well, yeah, I mean, they, they would do that. So you, you push it sort of beyond the boundary of believability. But then they'd reel it back in. So a perfect example, like you point out, the gloves. Okay, so here's a gadgety thing, uh, and you have to contrive a reason that uh, Tom Cruise has to go outside the building and climb up X number of floors to get it. So mm -hmm. you have to contrive all of that anyway. Then you have to contrive the way he's going to do it can't be a complicated system of harnesses and trusses and things. No, it's just got to be the gloves, and that's it. So you you take the gadgetry that far, but then you actually sell it because he's there. <laughs> you know, you sell it because of the, the way it's shot, the way it's edited, um, the way Tom Cruise performs it. Then you actually, you still buy the danger of what's happening. So that that's what I like here is that Brad Bird, I think, he, he keeps pushing your believability. He keeps pushing it and you go, oh, wait, it's just one more gadget, one more thing. But then I'll reel it back in. And and I love that it constantly plays with that instead of feeling like you're in, as you mentioned, with two, or if you look at the Fast and Furious movies, you're in a universe where the laws of physics are just completely a different thing. You're just in cartoon world at that point. Right. So I think this does a, a good job. And sure, they could have reeled it back a little bit more in some places. I'll admit that Right at the beginning, I was glad to see uh, Simon Pegg back 
because I, I've not seen these movies yet, so I didn't know that he would be uh, a recurring character. I was glad to see him back, but I was almost immediately turned off with the level of humor that they were giving him. But then at a certain point, I was just like, oh, okay, well, now that I've gotten past that initial kind of discomfort with that, I really liked him. And, and I think that was maybe either the writing or the directing, again, reeling it back just a little bit after you show me maybe a little too much, then I was okay. Then I was along for the ride. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, it does feel sometimes that in the beginning, like you're saying, John Simon Pegg's character gets a little too silly. Um, but I but I do think that they pull it together. And I like that, Matt, you mentioned the... Pull it together, man! <laughs> right? I like that you mentioned that it's, it's just cheeky enough, though, because there are times when, you know, like with the gloves again, where one of them stops working and he throws it in the wind and then suddenly it reappears because it's magnetic and it's suddenly working for a minute. Um, it, it's just a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's not too far. And, you know, it, then the mask machine breaks and it's just these just a little bit here and there that all together done that way. It's not bad. And you end up enjoying it. But if it had been pushed past that point, then you would have gone. This is just ridiculous. And, you know, it's just done for humor value and not focusing on the seriousness of the plot at hand. Um, so I, I do think that they handled the humor versus the seriousness really well. Well, and, and that's what's cool. You know, you mentioned uh, breaking the machine that creates their fabulous masks. Mm -hmm. So then by doing that, you really raise the stakes of those two simultaneous scenes. And I, I love the way they did that. So you have these two meetings happening in two different rooms, but the agents aren't undercover. They're just hoping that their contacts haven't seen the real person. Um, so you absolutely built the tension in those quite a bit. And I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting through the end of those scenes. All right, who's going to get found out first? How is this going to go wrong? Because you know it's coming. Right. And without those masks there to fall back on, it, it, uh, it drove home the reality of that situation. You know, I, I really like the way you guys are talking about the humor thing because I think – in many respects, you know, The Incredibles sets up what kind of humor we're going to get in this movie. And that I do feel like this is probably the funniest Mission Impossible in the sense that they are going for the most humor in it. Uh, and again, I think um, part of that is definitely Brad Bird's direction and what he, you know, brings to the writing and uh, and, and the, the direction, just process of it. And, and you know, I think he allows... Um, you know, part of that, too, is that, you know, when you get like Simon Pegg and, and Jeremy Renner and, and people like this in these type of roles, they're known for the kind of that like sarcastic humor anyway. And so he allows them to kind of go with that quite often in the film. And it's never a problem for me. But part of that, I think, is just that, you know, Incredibles kind of prepares you for this this type of, of Mission Impossible movie. And I think you were absolutely right, Christy. It's strange that the movie about nuclear possible Holocaust on the planet um, is the funniest Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, they, they never... That's one of the things that I think this movie does really well is that... I don't know if this is going to sound weird, but it never takes itself too seriously. Yeah. Uh, mm. But it's never a detriment to the film, which is usually a huge detriment to the film. 
everybody is taking that the characters are all taking it seriously but the film itself just seems to be like let's just have a really fun time throughout this whole thing and i think you know there's something to be said for that and i think part of that comes down to the fact that chris mccrory who would direct the next two Mission Impossible movies and is directing the next two in Mission Impossible movies after that, he actually came in and did a rewrite of the screenplay uncredited, but he took the mystery section and really helped them simplify that. And I think there are places in this movie where I feel like you could see where they could totally go off the rails with the mystery and make it overly complicated. And I'm so glad that he came in and fixed that because otherwise it would have destroyed the fun you were having, I think, in the film if he hadn't done that. Yeah, and I feel like him doing that and then working with Josh and with Brad basically ended up in this place where I feel like the the three of them agreed on a tone being if the world is possibly going to end, you're doing everything you can to stop it, but you stop more and examine what's important and that sometimes even in the darkest of times in your life that you have to laugh about it because what else can you do? Yeah. Yeah. And it, they always run the risk of it being silly. And, um, and when you do that, you take away any sort of any tension that the audience might have about, okay, will these characters survive or, or, you know, how will they be changed by the end of this? But there was still, just enough you know we talked about this with the bond films you can have humor what you can't do is stop and make jokes and this movie found that balance where you can there's plenty of humor in there occasionally when they stop to make a joke i would cringe i go back to the simon Pegg thing you know how many hundreds of times have we seen a character uh, in in any genre, any situation, who's a little nervous, a little awkward, they babble, and then they say something like, oh, I'm sorry, I babble when I'm nervous. Please, Hollywood, stop writing that line <laughs> or variations of that line for your awkward, quirky character. We're, we're done there. That was one of those times where this movie got jokey. But the rest of the time, mostly the rest of the time, um, I, I was okay with the humor and it feeling natural, at least like it belonged in this universe for this movie. Well, and a perfect example, too, of what you're saying, John, about having the humor where it needs to be. I think it's essential when toward the end, um, Jeremy Renner's character finds out that he actually wasn't responsible for Ethan's wife's death. Thank goodness they added that because, I mean, you just feel so terrible for the guy feeling like, you know, I left and then this happened and it's my fault and his wife is dead and I can't undo that. And and actually, they did a really nice job because, you know, maybe it's just conditioning from these types of movies. But as soon as they introduced Jeremy Renner's character, I felt like, okay, this is not who he says he is. And is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? There's something about him that we need to keep our eye on. And I'm glad that there is a payoff that he wasn't who he said he was, but he was he was still on their side. He wasn't the mole. He wasn't the bad guy. And there was some depth to his emotional arc. So I, I was glad that they they were able to create a twist there, but not just immediately go to the obvious place. Given yeah. some redemption too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great 
segue John into just kind of talking about the story for this one um, because we follow off the third and I you know wondered what you just guys thought of this kind of story because it's it's something we've I mean you know the, the general plot line is something we've definitely seen before um, but then of course they deal with some of the specific story threads that have been running through the Mission Impossible series here and so how did that one work here for you with Ghost Protocol? I felt like it could have been a little bit better in how they handled his marriage story-wise, just because the way they initially bring you out of the third movie is that they're happily ever after, they finally get a honeymoon, she meets the team, like everything is good. And I get that eventually, because of what he does, that she is going to become possibly in danger. That's kind of a classic thing with superheroes or spies or whatever, um, is that everyone close to them is in danger but it the way they explain it in the dialogue is like they separated for some unknown reason it after it seemed like everything was fine in the previous movie and then you find out that she possibly died and then later find out that she didn't die and it's all fine because he was just protecting her but the point that they get to there it didn't make sense to me I don't know if y'all felt the same way. Yeah, well, I, I was, I mean, honestly, when I started watching this and, and they're revealing all of this about their marriage, I, I was kind of heartbroken because yeah. I loved, yeah, I, I loved the, the character and, and where we landed in that, uh, in that third movie that, oh, you know, Julia is a real person in this movie is not just you know the the quote-unquote the bond girl the sacrificial lamb um they're, they're building a relationship here and then when she's suddenly not there and we're led to believe that she's dead okay really are we going this far to uh make sure that our hero is uh, protected as just the the hero who acts on his own, who who can't be tied down to anything or anyone. Huge relief. I like the subtle, uh, the the little the nod they give to each other at the end. So at least they they wrapped it up in a in a more positive way, even if they have gone their separate ways. That that was just a nice sort of uh, button to put on that. I think what's cool about these movies, and I, I didn't dig too deeply into the trivia on this. Matt, you've probably got some uh, some nuggets here. But one of the things that I read that I, uh, I liked was that, you know, they're trying to approach these movies where they don't all feel like uh, it's one big arc or one complete series. They can treat these on their own. And if I had only come into Ghost Protocol and hadn't seen the other movies, uh, it would actually be okay. Because enough information is fed to you about who the characters are and what's important to them, what the relationships are, that you can kind of take this on its own. But like the Bond movies, where, again, you're not building a strict continuity, there are these pieces that are left in there for you. So if I had just seen Mission Impossible 3 which I did, and I got that backstory about Julia, great. That, that makes what happens here a little more fulfilling, and that's fine. Uh, but I, I kind of had in my head, uh, going from Honor Majesty's Secret Service to then just a couple of more references to Bond's wife later, um, one in Fear Eyes Only, and then again in uh, The Living Day, I, I'm sorry, uh, License to Kill, 
So you, you have just a, a few little nuggets to say, okay, these these are thematically connected. These are character uh, elements that inform who these characters are. But this is not a soap opera. We, we, we were not forcing you to say, well, you have to watch every single one in order or else you're going to be completely lost and none of this will make sense. We're going to build enough threads in there that there's a payoff, but we're not going to punish you for having not seen the others too. Yeah, that's it's something that's really interesting about the movies. And I would say that starting with Ghost Protocol or starting with three and onward through Fallout and what I'm sure that Macquarie will do with his next two it really does begin to feel more like the Craig Bonds than it does what you were talking about. It's like they 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 really start to become more serialized in that sense. Like you can still watch them by themselves, but it's one of those things where you you get more out of it if you have seen the others at this right. point. Um but they also can still stand on their own completely, you know. Um and I do think that, that, you know, what got us on that subject of, Christy, you talking about the their marriage and the way that it's handled, honestly, I don't feel like what they do there um, truly ever gets answered well enough until we get to the end of Fallout, um, where they truly give us the answer of what happened, like why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a much more satisfactory answer, uh, it, it, you know, and so... Because, yeah, like you said, John, one of the things that you come out of three with, which is she's a part of the group now. You get the feeling like she's going to be part of things more than she will not be part of things, you know. And so then you come into this and it it does almost feel as though they don't want to have him have that baggage. So they concoct a way for him to not have that baggage. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, luckily, I think they do a better job of it here than some other films have done with previous films like Last Jedi, and, <laughs> you know, Force Awakens, dealing with those, that, you know, like what you're going to deal with, what you're not going to deal with. But I'm kind of with you, Christy. Like, I remember seeing this for the first time and thinking at the end, it's like, that's okay. That makes me feel a little bit better, but it doesn't make me feel a lot better. Right. You know, you're like, still kind of doesn't, confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, because they never truly answer. I mean, you you really, you come down to this. You get the feeling like that they have basically faked their own deaths um, and, and her death specifically so that she can then be ghosted basically and go live a life of free from all of this because of his job. Um and it's like, okay, that's great, but does that mean they're, like, still married or, you know, like, you you don't have any of those questions answered. And that's something that, like, especially when you get into Rogue Nation, you're like, I kind of hope he's not married because I like him with Elsa. And, you know, it's just this whole thing. It's hey, like, spoilers, spoilers. Uh, yeah, sorry, John. <laughs> but, yeah, I, so... I do think, though, that overall what they do with the story here is very interesting because I felt like that they created kind of a a, a classic type of villain, but they fit it within the time period that we're in and that it it felt like the story itself, it made sense. Like, this is the kind of people that, you know, IMF would go after. And so all of it together, I think, for the most part, story-wise, is something that especially with Chris McQuarrie coming in and, and, and making things a, a little bit cleaner uh, for the mystery, 
it definitely works for me. Even just rewatching it, I was like, okay, yeah, this movie, it just, it works and it flows and it's not one of the, it's not too overly complicated for its own good, which is excellent in these kind of movies, especially when, you know, like this one, it hardly lets you breathe, especially in that last third. Like you're from one set piece to the next and just like constantly going. And so if you were trying to keep up with like way too much story um, or plot, you would just get lost. And, and luckily they, they don't do that, which is great. Yeah, you know, it was a simpler time, 2011, when uh, the Soviet Union was a distant memory and Russia at that time was just sort of a vague place where ex-spies still lived. And uh, that's just how we thought of Russia at the time. <laughs> so it was very easy to, to, to place a sort of concoct a bad guy who's got nuclear codes and uh, we just got to go stop that guy. Yeah, I think that movie would be very different if it was written in 2019 and we were writing about Russia's abilities or motivations. Uh, it would be a different thing. But but, yeah, but, but it, it fits. And it, and, it, and it fits in this... Um, you know, this sort of twilight zone between what is real and what is just purely a, a, a contrivance to, to tell a fun, action-oriented spy movie that, as you said, moves at this breakneck pace from set piece to set piece. And I wanted to add, too, I'm glad that they didn't just completely demonize Russia, that they have Ethan make this friend who happens to be Russian and thinks he's a Russian guy named Sergei, um, you know, and, and they, they show it's... Are you not Sergei? <laughs> <laughs> that, like, it's one bad guy and his cronies that are causing the problem. It's not the whole of Russia. It's not, like, yeah, just saying yeah. Russia is terrible. So. Yeah. Well, the guy's not even Russian. It's the bad guy, too. That's what's so great. Like, he's this professor who has just gone Just ideologically good, off the yeah. charts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess it's a good time to talk about the villains. And with Kurt Hendricks, um, you know, he is um, somebody who has been studying the end of the world so long that uh, he can only see the end of the world as he knows it, and he definitely feels fine about it because what he's excited about is what happens after the end of the world. And so he's welcoming nuclear annihilation, basically, but he says that the the best way to do this, the only way that we really truly survive is by uh, planned, basically, nuclear annihilation. So we do have survivors, and then throughout of that, through the ashes, the greatest of humanity will come. You know, make humanity great again <laughs> is basically his survival hey, uh, of the see fittest. Yeah, see also uh, Stromberg, see also uh, Hugo Drax. Mm -hmm. um, but, but he would say, that, but that's a believable thing. Somebody who is driven by the ideology to uh, uh, such a point of fanaticism uh, that they want to bring about the destruction of everything around them so that, ah, they're the special ones. They're the ones who can actually rise up from the ashes and create a, uh, a new world. Well, and, I mean, even like Matt, we talked about that, talking about Godzilla, King of Monsters. <laughs> I hope that didn't spoil anything for anybody. <laughs> yes. No, you're absolutely right, Christy. I mean, it is kind of the same plot. Like, and it is so funny that so many guy, bad guys feel this way. But, you know, there is, in many ways, it's like a perverted Noah's Ark, you know, mm -hmm. in the sense of like, 
the idea that we're going to start over and it's going to be a humanity based like we wipe everybody out we decide who we wipe out and then we start over kind of thing you know um and you know there's there's definitely a big difference between god rewiping remaking the world and humanity you know um so it's it's such an interesting thing um, to see play out so many times, but it what I thought about it is that it kind of it kind of made sense to me for a guy to kind of live in the darkness so long, the darkness of studying the end of the world, that he begins to drink the darkness Kool Aid, you mm-hmm. know, like and and he can't seem to see anything other than you know destruction and and so he becomes one of those people who's like when everything when you're only a hammer everything's a nail you know and that's his character but it didn't seem like the craziness of a bond villain type of thing like those guys always just seem like they are definitely on the deep end but this guy just seems like yeah he's just been in the darkness too long and and forgotten what the light looks like and forgotten about any kind of hope which actually seemed much more realistic to me yeah like you could see how he gets there that it's plausible and it's not just preposterous like moonraker um you know that he uh he like you said matt is just obsessing about this for so long that he loses touch with reality but i think that even though we've seen that kind of character before that the way this is handled both in his performance of it and how it was written is still really good because he seems so relatable in the sense of like, like I said, like you see how, how he gets there. Uh, I mean, uh, look, my only comment on that, Christy, how dare you call Moonraker preposterous? (laughs) Um, Hidden space station, laser beams on space shuttles, and an epic uh, laser space battle over uh, over the Earth uh, that's going to be depopulated by uh, a virus. Uh, please, please, you know, leave that opinion about preposterous at home. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to find a new co-host after that. I mean, hey, now. I can't believe. No, just, <laughs> I'm totally kidding because, yeah, of course. Side, side track here. Um, I think when I first moved to L.A., there was some bar that had a bond night and they had a, uh, a Moonraker cocktail. And I think I asked the bartender, so this cocktail is great for the first three sips and it just makes me regret all my decisions uh, as I finish <laughs> it off. Is that, that must be how this cocktail goes. And it had gold leaf on the rim? Yeah, it should, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what did you guys think of, uh, you know, Leia Sadu playing our hit person, uh, Sabine? You know, I'll just say right up front, I love her. And I think she's great here as kind of the ice queen uh, of, you know, know, icing people. But uh, I, I just she's she's very good in the role, and uh, yeah, I'm so glad that she became a Bond girl too because uh, just I think she's fantastic. I agree. She's got this coldness that she brings to playing this character that you feel it. I mean, in your gut when she first walks up to the agent, she assassinates and not only shoots him three times from a distance. Then, as she's taking the bag, shoots him a couple more times from close range. That's just terrible. 
in you know in the best way for a villain um and i love that she works for diamonds because i mean hey that's smart they are forever (laughs) (laughs) and a girl's best friend um so true but yeah I, i i loved her as well yeah, no argument for me. I think she's so awesome. And ju- just as an actress, she has gone from doing like edgy, arty films to then these big blockbusters like Mission Impossible and uh, and the Bond films. And um, I think she's just so cool. She she's the the right combination of. I mean, not only look the Bond films, Mission Impossible films. They they always have strikingly beautiful women in them. Uh, but there's something about her that that you can believe her in that world. You can believe either whether it's the danger that she is in, or in this case, the danger that she is bringing. Um, she she just fits, and uh, she's great. And I, I'm glad we're going to be able to see more of her. Not not in the Mission Impossible movies, but uh, but in the Bond movies at least one more time. I mean, yeah, for her, watch that first step. It's yeah. a doozy. <laughs> I, so, I was shocked at that. Um, <laughs> this is one of those things where you have the open window and and you have this fight and you're like, oh, they're going to fight, but don't get too close to the window. Oh, somebody's going to hang over the edge for a minute. It'll feel really close. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, oh, no, no, no. They're letting her actually fall out. <laughs> yeah, she's dead. No one's catching yeah, She her. just kicks her butt out yeah. the window. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, which I, I have to say, I think, you know, the thing that was so great is that Leia Sadu and Paul Patton, they were really inspired by Tom Cruise doing all of his own stunts that they did all of their own stunts for the fight. So that's them. And I mean, that is like the knockdown, most dragged out, nasty girl fight I've ever seen. Like it really does look like they are both trying to kill each other so many times in fights like that it doesn't look dirty and nasty but this just looks like two women who want to murder each other Mm. and they don't care how they have to do it and i thought it's just you know with all the spectacle that's happening in the in this movie i felt like that was one of the best fights in the movie just because Mm. It felt so real. It's such close quartered. And you really sense the ferocity because it's both of the actresses literally doing their own stunts. And so it worked perfectly for me. And and both of them need to be praised for the work there. Yeah, I mean, for sure, making it look real, it absolutely felt like a real, like, dirty cat fight. Like, one of us is going down. And clearly one of them did. Um, <laughs> but um, All the way down, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But you feel the motivation as well for the characters of why they get to that point as well. Like, you know, with Jane, her friend was killed. And you sense maybe even that they possibly were in like a romantic relationship, her and the agent that was killed. So that kind of motivation, of course, she already wants to kill this girl. Um, And then, you know, the other girl being an assassin already, she just wants to kill everyone. So it it comes down to the death. And I, I loved it. Yeah, it was a perfect way to raise those stakes and they didn't already have the the moment with her lover being killed early in the movie. Uh, I would have insisted on a rewrite and say, yeah, you got to go back and put in this scene to give her all the motivation in the world mm-hmm. to absolutely be invested in this fight. Um, it, it was great. And, I, and I'm glad they went there with that fight. 
you know, we have um, some new members of the team and some old members of the team. And so, you know, John, you mentioned them, them bringing back, you know, Simon Pegg. And obviously Tom Cruise is back is, is Ethan Hunt. And so um, what, what I was uh, glad to see is just, you know, the thing that makes Tom Cruise and, and Simon Pegg work in this movie is just they have really good chemistry on screen. Like, they play off of each other well. And, you know, even in that moment, uh, John, that you were talking about earlier with the humor of where he babbles, you know, it's Tom Cruise that makes that work so well because he's just so stoic and, like, so kind of annoyed and he's showing it all over his face mm-hmm. and he barely says anything as that character. Like, he's completely in character as the Russian general there. And... They make that work. And so for me, I'm I'm really kind of glad that they not only brought Benji back and they made him a part of the team again, but I felt like they did a great job and a smart thing by bringing him out even into the field to give him even more to do. So we're not having to com- always because they're, you know, they're in ghost protocol. Uh, he's he's not they're not going to be going back, you know, to uh, headquarters like they were um and the first one that he's in in three. So yeah, those two playing off with each other. I was so glad that that, that part of the old team was back. When the, the way even that Benji and Ethan interact where it's like Ethan's training him in the field, um, and, you know, with the screen in the hallway and Benji accidentally putting his face in front of the camera. It's just those things that, that look for a beginner you would expect would happen. And Ethan is just going, oh, my God. <laughs> and it, they play it great. And it, I I love Simon Pegg anyway, but I think that it's really nice, too, that they bring it back to those moments where he, he just puts like a hand on his shoulder, on Ethan's shoulder, and he's like, hey, seriously, though, I heard about what happened with your wife, and I'm sorry. That was a nice touch. And so it wasn't all goofy all the time with Benji, and I like that. Yeah, I, it, again, I just kind of go back to what I said uh, earlier in the show. It, it's it, When I was first presented with that, it really felt out of place. And I just thought, oh, no, this is where we're going. Um, it, it's just going to be the big spotlight over the comic relief. And they, Like, don't they be the managed- buddy cop movie. What's that? Like, don't be the buddy cop movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but they managed to dial it back because they made him a part of the team, uh, an integral part of the team. And um, that's such a great sequence, like you mentioned, with the, the projection screen to fool the Russian guard. And I like the the quietness of that scene. I like the tension they built in that scene so that when you had a, a silly mistake, like him putting his face in front of the camera, um, it, it, yeah, it was goofy, but it helped to heighten the tension as well. So again, it's a super fine line that they, they found the right way to do it. What did you guys think? You know, we brought in somebody new to the team, one of our new team members, uh, and we've got Paul Patton. Here is Jane Carter, who has the relationship with Joss Holliday's character, who is the spy that dies at the beginning, um, getting shot by Sabine so many times, which... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so how did you guys feel that, that she did in the role here? Uh, I, I want to see more of her. 
Uh, I, I thought she was great, and we, um, you know, we talked about her standout moment, which is that fight with uh, Leia Sadu. And um, interestingly, I, I read that some people uh, uh, might think that maybe her being named Agent Carter is uh, a reference back to Barbara Bain as Cinnamon Carter in uh, the original Mission Impossible series. So immediately you earn points with me uh, if you make a reference back to the original series. Um, I, I thought she, she was very good. I mean, everybody on this team is a standout in some way. They all have their moment. Um, I think what's difficult about these movies is that you have a star like Tom Cruise, and then the other star of the movie is the action. So the the co-stars sort of are playing not second fiddle, but third fiddle there. Um, but the fact that she stands out the way that she does, and especially with that fight, I mean, that that's at least a testament to giving the characters the right moments that they need. So... Yeah, I uh, no problem with her at all. I don't have a problem with her either. And I, I felt like I needed to mention, especially with the writing of Jane, I felt like they did really great with not making her um, have things too easy. Um, you know, just because she was beautiful, for example, in the scene with the man hosting the party and um, what was it, India? Um, it, it, wasn't like he instantly just fell all over her, you know? Um, and I like that they had the back and forth of her and, um, Ethan, you know, saying, make him work for it. <laughs> um, it was funny, but then it also felt like it, she had a real mission to accomplish. She had to get those codes. So she was going to do whatever she needed to, but, you know, not let him take advantage of her either. And I like that she could fight and, the actress made it look real and did her own stunts. And I just really think that she's a, a great character and also a, an actress that needs to get more roles. I, I'm glad you mentioned that scene because that, I love that scene uh, or that sequence rather with, with her trying to seduce him. And he's got this plan. I, that's pretty much the only role I would want always in all future films is uh, the, 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 the playboy who thinks he's really suave, but just completely gets humiliated. I like, I just, mm -hmm. I think it's wonderful. It was a great sequence. And I mean, like I, what I meant to say too, with her not having things too easy is that she fails sometimes on her missions and, you know, exhibit a killing the person that she was told repeatedly, don't kill her. She's an asset. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot in this movie that goes wrong. There's a lot that fails, and you, you have to have that in every spy movie. You have to have that in every Mission Impossible movie because you have to have the hero sort of out-clever his or her way past the failure. So that, that's always going to be a thing, but in this is just so much, and that is sort of the, the, the underlying premise here is that all the IMF support is gone. Mm -hmm. um, and not only are they gone, but when the equipment fails in the field, well, you, you've got to be that much more clever. And even when they argue about the right course of action, that, that all seemed uh, to really underline the problem that they were having. Um, so, yeah, yeah, cool, cool to see all of that um, break down, but then come back together. Yeah, I really liked her in the role, and she is a character that I think... 
you know, as Macquarie is looking at the future uh, of the series um, with the next two films, which I'm thinking will probably end up being the last two. Um, so I would like to see her come back. You know, the, 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 this film does set up the fact that she could, she picks up the phone. Um, and, uh, spoiler alert, John, we will not see her again, at least in the yeah. next two. So <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that it would be great to see her come back and play a role in those, those, because I do think she is very competent in the movie. Um, I feel like the more the movie goes on, the the better she gets throughout it. You know, at the beginning, she's not doing anything that's like blowing me away or anything. Mm-hmm. But as we go through the movie, I feel like she just gets better and better and better so that I really enjoy the character and I really care about what's going on with her. And they do a great job of writing for her, but then she kind of makes me believe it, which is great. So, um, Jeremy Renner is William Brandt, who is definitely a character we will see again um what did you guys think about his addition here and we talked a little bit about you know the way his story works but how did you feel like he pulls off this um kind of like i don't he's like this strange kind of like underdog character where you like you just don't know what to do with him for a long while in the movie like how to feel about him i thought he was incredible because it he just first of all plays this kind of role a lot that's really complex with the things that he his characters having to deal with and the emotions that he has to switch through but i love that they bring him in as sort of you know the guy with you know taking notes he's the analyst um and then it ends up you know ethan's watching him and going you know way too much about combat to be just an analyst. Come on, like the jig is up. And, you know, eventually them giving you more and more information about him till you know everything. And I love that they did it in that way and didn't tell you everything up front. Um, And then also give a lot of emotional weight to what's going on with him because he's constantly carrying around that guilt that he thinks he is responsible for Ethan's wife dying. Um, so I think that both Jeremy brings a lot to the character and then also you care about him because of the writing that they did in those specific moments. I could not have said it better myself. Yeah. He, he's imminently watchable because there's so much going on. And even when they let him break out of, uh, sort of the, the mold that they've cast for him, like it's a very funny scene when he's getting ready to jump into oh, yeah. the, uh, the, the ventilation shaft for the computer and he's, he's stretching and he's hesitating and all like, it's a funny scene. Um, but they needed to lighten him up a little bit. Cause you just feel like he's, carrying around all this stuff all the time there there is so much complexity to him and he's not cast in the same sort of hero mold that an ethan hunt is although they do give ethan hunt a lot of complexity particularly over the the course of the the series of these movies um but yeah, I, I think he's spectacular. And I, I love the way he is introduced in this movie, that you're discovering things about him over the long term of the film, not just all in, in one shot. Jimmy Renner is a, is a really good character actor, I think, and I've always really enjoyed him in things. And, and part of that is the fact that he has a really witty sense of humor. 
And so the the moments where he's like bitingly sarcastic or just being like, you buy him as the guy who was the analyst who does not want to jump over this fan that's 25 mm-hmm. feet down. You know, like you just, he he's able to play kind of the everyman well. And I think he was good casting for this. And I really like him in the role. And I'm also very glad that he's a character that continues on through the series. Um, so... I can't wait to see how they'll maybe hopefully continue to use him in the in the next two films they're doing. Um, guys, there's some serious stunts and spectacle no in this movie. And how do they live up for you here? You know, I mean, they've already set a pretty high bar with Mission Impossible. What do you think? Absolutely. The tower scenes for me got me so bad. I mean, because I will tell you, I'm terribly afraid of heights myself. So the way that they filmed that entire sequence had me sitting on the edge of my seat the entire time, sweaty palms. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that's a testament to how well it was put together. The, you know, being able to hide the cables um, that Tom Cruise was on because he does like to do his own stunts. Um, I, I think especially having one glove fail when you know he's only got those two things holding him up. That entire stunt was my favorite of the whole movie. I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny because, again, you you can't help, or at least I can't help, compare these to the Bond movies, partly because of those podcasts that we're doing and you know what we've done before, uh, but, but partly because you know, you're talking about the creation of this huge spy-themed franchise – And for all the movies that have come along that have tried to ape the James Bond style or what they think is the James Bond style, and they they fall short constantly. And you go back and go, oh, but but really the Bond movies, not only do they do it better, they will continue to do it better. Um, This is one of those movies where I go, man, I bet Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli saw this and were like, oh, now we can't use the tower in Dubai because they did it and they've already done it as well as it's ever going to be done. So we did go find another exotic location to do our next big set piece. Um, But I think that's a good thing. You know, this movie goes to so many interesting locations and makes such great use of them, Um, makes you feel not only where they are, but again, the drama, the tension around where they are. that 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 is truly such a standout uh the the shot in the tower in dubai um i would also say that as far as the stunts go uh the the car chase uh in the bmw i8 is terrifically well done where they're trying to get to the uh to stop the satellite signal going up um that's very well done um so, yeah, I, I don't think there's a weak link in here as far as action or stunts go. And again, going, going back to that fight uh, where we lose Leah Sadu, you know, mm-hmm. it was quite a surprise to me. I guess it's sort of like Chekhov's window pane at this point. If you lose a window pane in a building, somebody's got to fly out of it. Well, and like the explosions at the Kremlin, I honestly was a little bit surprised at how many they did and how close they were to Ethan, who, you know, ultimately gets hit by one. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and same. I, I was surprised. I was not surprised to see the initial blast, and you have the you know mostly pretty well done CG of of walls and towers falling. And then I was not surprised to see explosions getting close because you have to have a heroic shot of mm-hmm. Ethan running away. But I was really surprised, like, oh, he lands in a hospital now. He's knocked out. And I, I loved his getting rid of the costume as the general, but the reveal of <laughs> finding it later. Yeah, uh, that that's the problem is when you have a reversible jacket that has your uh, Russian military <laughs> Uh, costume hiding underneath somebody might find it yeah i think um one of the things that uh, i'll say that the stunts and spectacular in this movie are pretty spectacular every time they're doing one of their real stunts you know where he's climbing the tower it's fantastic um you know i don't know exactly how they did the driving in the sandstorm my guess is is that that is him just driving and then they add the sandstorm in later obviously because it would be way too dangerous for him to do that real um in a sense of in a sandstorm um plus i don't even know how you would film that either <laughs> that would yeah that would wreak havoc on the equipment um, seriously um and so like at, at the fight sequence there um you know the the fight sequence inside the uh, gr- uh, garage, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, the special car garage was ridiculous. And, and like, you know, I mean, he just takes a beating. Um, and I like it. It comes back to like hospital and he can't even say <laughs> anything. He's just like slowly nodding his head. So all of that I think was really great. And there are a couple of things though that, that kind of stood out for me in this last watch. One, I, the, the CGI with the Kremlin's kind of dodgy and it does not, you know the, the 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 Mission Impossible movies, especially these later ones, have really prized themselves on everything looking very real. Um, and when you compare what that looks like with him actually climbing the tower, it's like mm. it just it does look like CGI, yeah. um, and 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 not great CGI. So, and the same thing at the very end where it hits the tower in San Francisco, it does not look real at all. I, it just you know. So the 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 couple things there and then something I wanted to ask you guys this is the only Mission Impossible movie where I felt like maybe there was one action sequence too much especially by the end I just felt like I will but you do your most amazing stunt with the tower and almost everything after that is like you just keep force feeding me we talked about this Christy mm-hmm. that you just keep force feeding me steak right and it's like okay, by the time we got to the fight in the car garage, I am kind of, I'm I'm already ready for this to have already been completed. But it almost just felt like there's one too many steps with one too many fights. And so I, I, I like it all, but I also am, I don't know I mean, what to say there. I don't know if I'm just exhausted by the end of it and it's not always necessarily in the best way. No, I get what you're saying. It generally with story structure, you feel like it should build to a climaxing point and then fall from there and have a resolution and it felt like the tower was that climactic point of this movie 
but then they kept trying to continue to build tension again and you felt like the big fight had already happened. Why are we doing more of this? So I, that totally makes sense to me. Yeah, um, I, I think for me, it wasn't about there being one too many. I think some of the sequences were long. Um, so, you know, the, the car chase in the sandstorm, partly because they foreshadow that sandstorm so much. You see it way yeah. off in the distance, which is cool. But you know it's coming. You know it'll have to have an impact on what they're doing. You just don't know when. So when it finally does arrive, you're like, oh, well, wait, Ethan's got to chase down the guy, but he's got to keep going. Now he's on foot. Now he's got a car. <laughs> now, now now, we're watching the uh, the GPS in the car so he can chase the other car. That went on a bit long. Um, and, and some of these sequences went on long. I, I think what you have to do is you've got to plant the one that that legitimately needs to be the long one, which is Tom Cruise hanging from a building at just an ungodly height up because the audience needs to gasp during that. And the others, I think they serve okay to get from place to place or to get from information to information, which was what a spy movie needs to do. Um, but they don't need to overstay their welcome. Yeah, that's I mean, absolutely. You yes, thank you, John. You figured out <laughs> how I was feeling, which is that mm -hmm. it was it was just too long. Like, um, and I if you had shortened them up, then maybe I wouldn't have felt like that. Um, especially I think you nailed it that after the tower, then that chase in the sand, it does feel like it's a full like twenty minutes worth of the movie, where it's like if you cut that down to 15 so that that sand sequence part is much shorter i probably don't have quite the fatigue i get at the end of the movie where i'm just like <gasps> okay mm -hmm. um and i just one last thing on this is i think the problem is is that the movie can never outdo what it already did too like as cool as the fight sequence is you know and and i mean tom cruise ethan hunts is just getting his butt kicked like crazy in that I and mean, he's just taking a beating in that car garage like that's still not as cool as climbing the world's tallest building yeah you know so although driving the car head first down the bottom of it <laughs> terrified me not covered by insurance <laughs> and i've been in a bad accident before and the impact like that you never forget and so the whole time this time on my rewatch i was going oh no 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 <laughs> I feel like, you know, we could talk more about the movie, but for all that we've talked about, I'm really interested to see where you guys come down ratings wise. And so, John, where are you at with Ghost Protocol? Man, I was so happy with this movie. And, you know, it's weird for me to be into the original Mission Impossible series and uh, to love James Bond as much as I do, and, and other classics like uh, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and, and parody spy movies like uh, the Matt Helm movies or Austin Powers or whatever, I'm, I'm surprised at myself that I had not um, made a beeline to the theaters to see these. And I liked the first Mission Impossible movie, uh, Warts and All. Um, I appreciated what they were trying to do with that. And I understand some fan criticism of that movie, but it didn't stop my enjoyment of it. I think maybe the uh, the marketing around Mission Impossible 2 
really soured the whole thing for me. And that's when I stopped seeing these movies in the theater. You know, the, that was out there and I just went, wow, the, this does not look like a style I want to see. Even though I knew the later movies were different, um, I just didn't feel plugged into it. So now I have the both of you to thank for reintroducing these to me. So I get to see these for the first time with some fresh eyes and, uh, and really do a deep dive study of it. And I have so much fun watching this movie. Um, I think everything that we've hit in this episode of 602 uh, leads up to why I enjoyed it, which is, you know, first and foremost, Brad Bird, I understand that he came into an incomplete script. There are a lot of changes made, but I think his hand at this, giving the, the right level of humor, the right level of tension, the right level of real world versus the right level of surreal or hyper real. I think they all fit. I think the actors having their moments to take a breath and their moments of some deep, sincere emotion in this. I, I think they all work really well. And and I like this is something that has some connective threads back to the last movie and what I hope I will see now going forward in the other movies. So despite little things some action scenes that go on too long, some heavy-handed CG, <laughs> a few things like that. Um, I am going to give this an eight, maybe even an eight and a half uh, BMW i8s out of ten. Nice, nice. I don't know who's going to be driving around that. Half. <laughs> I know. Well, Roger <laughs> Moore eight, clearly, because but... anybody can drive a half a car. It's Roger true. Moore. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. What about you, Christy? I was really looking forward to what hearing what you thought of it, John, coming in on it the way that you did, you know, it, and I I was the same as well um, up until Matt and I talked about Fallout. Um, I had not seen two through five. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this was my second or third rewatch of all of them now. Um, and I really... Again, I'm surprised when I watch this again, how much I enjoy it and, uh, you know, remember the meaningful parts of it more than it's just a fun ride. But I do think that it's a good contrast to MI3 with the serious tone of that um, and the way that the villain was played by Philip Seymour Hoffman being so intense. Um, so I really like how this one just like you said, balanced the humor with the emotional pieces of it. And I love them bringing in Jeremy Renner. I think that Paula Patton was incredible as an addition to the team. Um, and, and I think that Simon Pegg, although we're kind of used to his style of humor, still had some nice moments that fit in, like we said, the, the seriousness. So I'm going to also give it an 8 out of 10. Uh, I'm going to just go with diamonds. Nice. I'll take eight out of ten diamonds. Then any why day. not? <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a good call to me. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, what can I say? This is—it's a good movie. I mean, it—it it just is, and it might not be my favorite Mission Impossible movie, but it doesn't also make it a bad movie. It's just you know. Like, there's all those things. Like, it isn't, you know, for me, I think this is fourth on the list. But it's also, I rated it four out of five stars. You know, so this is definitely 
uh, right there where you guys are, which is eight out of 10. You know, so this is a phenomenal film. I think it's a lot of fun. Like you said, Christy, I think it does do a great job of kind of differentiating itself from the third one. And it feels different then from what comes after this as well. So um, it, it does its own thing and it does it well. And it I just, I enjoy watching it every time, you know? And so, yeah, this is a fantastic addition to the Mission Impossible franchise. And I honestly can't wait to hear now what John will think when he watches Rogue Nation and Fallout because, um, you know, John, you can please do like post your thoughts in the Babel conference on those yes. threads because yeah. like of those that we've already covered because I really do want to hear what you think because I I personally think from three, the Mission Impossible movies only get yeah. better. Like they just continue to find a way to to be better. So it's an incredible thing that they're able to do, and I love it. So so glad you know we got a chance to talk about this. I really appreciate our associate producers Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Wyoming Millett, and Daniel Noah for supporting the show through Patreon. They are our associate producers through Patreon, and now this is a really big network. We have a lot of shows coming out each week, and honestly, folks. We need your help to make sure that this keeps coming to each and every week. There's no way that the hosts of the network can do this on our own. So the way that you can help the network is to go to patreon.com slash trekfm, see how you could be a part of the team. Now, we have a bunch of different contribution levels you can give at, but honestly, every little bit does help. So again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. John, so glad you're back. We're talking about what I think we're going to probably do, never say never again, you, me, and Christy, as we wait for Bond 25. Yes. Um, so fans can look out for that. But where can everybody uh, check you out if they want to see what else you're up to, uh, you know, in, in the internet ether? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, first stop would be podcast.roddenberry.com. Um, so personally, I crank out three shows a week. There's Mission Log, Mission Log Live, and The Trek Files. So uh, come on by and get a Star Trek fix there if you like. Now, um, I do do other things too, uh, not just Star Trek 24 hours a day. So you can hit me up on uh, Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, I am at uh, DVDGeeks. On Facebook, I'm John Champion. And uh, if you're uh, if you want to have some fun, just go over to uh, Instagram and find me there. Slow mo, gentlemen. Everything is better when it's in slow motion. That's true. It is true, right? <laughs> yeah, not not a lie. Not a lie on that. <laughs> and uh, of course, I'm Christy, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bespin Bell. And if you want to talk to me, uh, of course, in the Babel Conference, I like Brandy sometimes lurk around there. Um, so I, I do see everything if sometimes I forget to respond. I've seen it. Um, and I, I, in addition to the 602 Club, I do a show every other week with my friend Teresa called Sabres and Spells uh, about basically Star Wars, Harry Potter. Uh, we recently wrapped up talking about Game of Thrones and our starting Umbrella Academy. So uh, you'll want to check that out. 
I'm also on once a month doing a segment called Fashion in Five on my friend's uh, show, The Star Wars Report. And I do a show um, starting once a month called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax network. Um, so make sure you look for me on Fanthatrax.com doing that show. And I can be found here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine when we get the opportunity to get a show out. So check that out. It's a lot of fun. We love doing it. But if anybody's wondering, uh, it's with our time schedules, him in Japan, me here in the States, and our crazy work schedules, it has been very difficult for us to find time to record. But we we get around to it whenever we can because Deep Space Nine is our one true love. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I do two shows over there. One is called Outpost. I do that with Drea Kaufman, and we're going through the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then I'm doing Aggressive Negotiations with the one and only John Mills, where we talk about Star Wars each and every week. It is a blast. If you love Star Wars, this is the show for you. So please do check it out. And then last but not least, I'm doing a show called Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney, and that's where we talk about films through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for listening. And y'all come back now, you hear? 